Good morning. Hope you're ready for the heat. And I'm not talking about my teaching necessarily. Um, but it could be. We are talking about sin today, so that, that would fit. Let me begin with prayer and uh, ask for God's help as we look into this study this morning. Father, we're thankful that uh, we can be called Your children. There's no greater title that we can receive in this lifetime. Lots of great accomplishments that we can make in our lifetime, but the fact that You call us to be Your children is, is significant and eternally so. And so we are amazed and and in awe of Your grace. And we want to live in light of that. We want to walk worthy of our calling and, uh, and be the Christians that we ought to be and uh, follow our Savior and be brave, stand up for Him and, uh, and be willing to obey even when it doesn't make sense to us. Help us as we look into Your Word this morning. May we understand uh, our sin so that we can understand why we need salvation, our standing before You, and, uh, and how it is that we can have a right relationship with You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the uh, core themes of the Bible is the, um, the problem of sin. It's pretty hard to read through any part of Scripture without seeing this subject of sin and what we'll see as we go through the Scriptures is that sin is, is there, that, that man sins, and that also God judges those who sin. In fact, in, chapter, in, in, the, um, in the prophets, you have uh, basically the, the prophets are filled with a lot of judgment. You read through the book of Revelation. We just finished a study in Revelation. And we spent, what was it, 14 chapters going through God's judgment on sin, chapter 6 through chapter 19, showing the tribulation judgments that will come upon the world because of, of sin. And, and uh, if you uh, were there for that, that period of time we went through that study, you felt the weight of that judgment. It felt uh, overwhelming at times that we just week after week we're going through God's judgment on, on people. And yet... Um, what this highlights actually is is God's holiness and His means to to wipe out sin, to put it away. Um, and so, uh, and so, sin is a very prevalent problem in our in our world, in our lives. Isaiah fifty nine. Ultimately, this is what it it does for us. Your iniquities, your sins, have made a separation between you and God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. Isaiah there is talking uh, to these, these uh, people of Israel and saying, listen, you, you, in order for you to be right with God, there has to be something done about this sin that, that separates you. It, it's, it spans a gulf between you and God. But thank God that that is not the end of the story. There's more to it than that. Listen to... Um, oh, well, this is Jesus or this is John the Baptist speaking of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came to take care of that sin. You know that sin that we were just saw in Isaiah there that separated us from God? Jesus came to take care of that problem. In fact, His name 
His very name Jesus means that He will take away the sins of the world. And he often would say that he came, to, he came to save sinners. He didn't come to save those who were healthy, that is, those who were self-righteous, that they thought they could make it on their own. He came to save sinners. Listen to J.C. Ryle here. He says, A right understanding and knowledge of sin lies at the root of saving Christianity. In other words, we need to understand what sin is, what it means for us before a holy God in order for us to understand Christianity rightly, in order for us to understand our relationship with God, what Christ means, and so on. So let's look at several of the words that are used in Scripture for sin. And and, uh, these are actually, not the words that are used, but these, these are actually the words that are defined as sin. There's lots of different words that are used, like sin, iniquity. But in the, in the Hebrew language, which is what the Old Testament is written in, and in the Greek language, they're translated as these words. Okay? Failure, worthlessness, perversion, lawlessness, ungodliness, falsehood, stupidity, sickness, injustice, moral, spiritual evil, error, lack of reverence, trespass, debt, and ruin. And, and so it should be no wonder that we, we should avoid sin because all of these things are, are detrimental to us personally and, um, and sin should, should be something that we want to avoid. This uh, sin really shows us that, that it is a violation of the accepted standards, that God has put out some standards and we have viola- violated them. See that here with lawlessness, okay, failure. We haven't met up to God's standard. And um, so we need to understand more about sin. We need to understand what the Scriptures say about sin. And that's why we're going through this study um, called Systematic Theology, a, an organized study of the doctrines of Scripture. And now we come to this doctrine of sin. So let's look at it from a theological perspective. It's simply a study a biblical study perspective. Um, This is a famous theologian um, from the late 1800s, A.H. Strong. He says sin is the lack of conformity. See that not meeting up to the standard? A lack of conformity to the law of God, either an act, disposition, or state. Okay, what he means there is is sin is not just when when we do something wrong. Sin is that, certainly. But it's also in our disposition, our attitudes, our minds. Okay, we can sin in our minds without actually doing anything with our hands or our eyes or, or our feet or, or whatever, or our mouths. Uh, it's, it, it can be done in the mind. Um, in the Old Testament, God revealed His law to Israel, but that does not mean that the law was unknown to people apart from that Mosaic law. What I mean by that is Mosaic law came at a point in time, right? It came to Moses at Mount Sinai uh, to be given to the people of Israel. So apart from that law, in other words, people who, di- who weren't in the community of Israel, were they able to know the law of God, anything about the law of God? And they weren't able to know fully what God wanted, what He demanded. But were they able to know anything? Help me out here. 
Yes. Okay. What about before Moses? Could, could anybody know anything about God's law before Moses? And, and the reason I say yes is because Romans 2.15 says that the law was written on their hearts. That is, every single human has a conscience. And that conscience may be misinformed at times, oftentimes, but ultimately, every single person, because God, God made them in His image, has the law of God written on their heart. Now, they don't know everything about, you know, they can't come to, to salvation because just because they, they know something in their heart. But, but Romans 2, 14 and 15 talk about it, the law being written, in, written on their heart. The law came, Paul said, um, in order for him to know where he was defying God. That is, Paul was defying God before, but when the law came, it made it clear Okay, uh, we have a general sense. If we, if we didn't know the law at all, okay, God's commands, God's demands for our lives. If we didn't know that at all, we would have a general sense that we are doing what is wrong. How does an unbeliever know, for example, whether murder is wrong or right? I mean, it's because they grew up that way. Um, generally, it's just because they have a conscience, right? But what the law does is when you see more that, okay, God does say do not murder, but... But when he shows all these other things, we see how sinful we really are. And so, as Paul says in Galatians, the law really becomes our tutor. It, it really is just there to point us to our own wickedness and point us to our need for someone who could ultimately keep the law. Not us, but Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that here in a second. All right? Um, sin comes in, in various forms. Um, as you know, there uh, can be an attitude or a desire such as lust, greed, or envy. It can be an individual act such as murder or lying or stealing. Um, there can be sins of commission, actively doing what God says not to do. Okay, Do not trespass and we trespass. It can be sins of omission. That is, we just simply don't do what God commanded to do. He says, go and do this, and we don't. We just stay back here and do nothing. That's sin of omission. Sin is corrupting. It is, uh, we could say, parasitic. Because it lays hold of our hearts and it starts to corrupt it. And um, so we, we have to watch out for, for sin. Sin is also blinding. It promises something that it can never give. It twists the truth. It enslaves us. But not only that, it seeks to bind us from the consequences of running after it like uh, a worm would go after, uh, or a fish would go after a worm on a hook. We, we keep going after it. We think it's going to satisfy. And then when the hook, um, when the hook, it, when the hook is, it sinks in, then, then we, uh, we really feel the struggle against it. So this will this is just some basic overview um, with regard to sin from a theological perspective. Now we want to get into a little bit more detail. And the first thing that we should understand about sin is that God hates sin. God hates sin. It should be clear to us that God hates sin because God is holy. Um, Hebrews one nine says of God that that God has loved righteousness and hated wickedness. 
Okay, and that's true. God does hate sin. Romans 1.18 talks about how um, there, there is ungodliness and unrighteousness of men upon which God's judgment reigns. Okay, but, but God doesn't just hate the sin. Turn to Psalm chapter 5. Perhaps you've heard the phrase or maybe even used the phrase before. I know I have both heard and used it before. That God hates the sin but loves the sinner. And there's a sense in which that is true. But we have to be careful how we speak about God because the Scriptures teach us that God not only hates the sin, but He also hates the sinner. Psalm 5.5. Would someone read that for us? Okay. You hate all who do iniquity. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies, uh, bloodthirsty and deceitful men. Um, so, so God's wrath is not just on some some idea. That is, okay, we sin, we get into this pool of sin, and God hates that big pool of sin. Psalm five tells us. Psalm eleven says the same, very similar thing that God hates the sinner. God hates those who do iniquity. In John 3:36, Jesus says, "Whoever believes in the oops, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him." How does God's wrath remain on someone whom he doesn't hate? Okay? And the point is he does hate them. There is a sense in which God hates that person. Now, the reason I say we could probably make this statement, God hates sin but loves the sinner, we could probably say that as long as we're careful and we understand what we're saying because there is a sense in which God, uh, God does love the sinner. Uh, the fact that He sent Jesus Christ for us suggests that He loves the sinner. The fact that He sends rain down on the just and the unjust suggests that He loves the, the sinner. But we also have to recognize that that that's not a full, eternal love that he has on them. Um, listen to what John Murray has to say or, or read along here with me. He says, um, To be complacent toward that which is the contradiction of his, God's own holiness, would be a denial of himself. The justice of God demands that sin receive its retribution. And here's the question. The question is not... How can God, being what He is, send men to hell? That's often what we say. How could God do something like that? How could God be such a judging God like that? The question should be, how can God, being what He is, save them from hell? If God is a just judge and sin must be punished, then why aren't we punished? And that's the question that we need to answer. So God does hate sin and He also hates the sinner. And that really leads us to um, the origin of sin and what's known as the problem of evil. How can a good, loving, all-powerful God allow evil into the world? In what, what kind of connection does God have to evil? And, uh, and I admit this is a very complex topic, topic but I'll try to to uh, shed some light on it for you. Certainly can't answer all the questions, but try to sh shed some light. First of all, 
we must understand that sin did not originate in God. God is not the creator of sin. God is not the author of sin. The Scriptures never speak about Him in that way. Listen to Habakkuk 1.13. It says that His eyes are too pure to look on evil. 1 John 1.5, He is light. In Him is light. And... and um, and there is no darkness at all. James 1.13, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. Deuteronomy 32.4, God's works are perfect and all His ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is He. Okay? So God, we must say, does not sin, nor does He force people to sin. He doesn't tempt anyone. That's what James 1 is talking about. He doesn't tempt or, or uh, put, put uh, sin as an enticing thing in front of a person. So then how do we explain it? How do we explain sin and evil in the world? And let me suggest two propositions. These are from D.A. Carson's book on prayer. And he works through um, basically this... this um, uh, what do you call it? The conundrum or the um, the tension that there is in the scripture between God's sovereignty that He is powerful and ruling over every aspect of creation and our responsibility. There is a tension in scripture. If you read through, you'll notice this. Um, so let, these are from from his book, D. A. Carson. First of all, we need to understand that God is sovereign. Okay, what do I mean by sovereign? What does that mean? Okay, there's not one molecule in the universe that God doesn't say that's mine. He doesn't have. There's no 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 place in Scripture where it's like, oh well, that's kind of outside God's control. Everything is under God's control, but His ultimate control never functions in Scripture to reduce our responsibility. That is, he, he, there's some way in which God's sovereignty compatibly works with our responsibility. And we can't fully understand how that connection works because it seems like either God's doing everything and we're sitting back here as, as robots or we're responsible for everything and God has no, no control over me. But the Scriptures actually have a middle ground. Where God is, where both God is sovereign and we are responsible. Now, here's the problem with thinking that that God is completely sovereign and and that we have no control over what we do. That is, we have no responsibility. The problem with that is that we become amoral creatures. You know what I mean by that? That means that we don't have responsibility for anything we did because God's ultimately in control, right? So it's not my fault that I sinned. But the Scriptures say it is our fault that we sin. That we are the agent. We are uh, not, not the agent. We're the actor in, in sin. Second thing is from the other side. So first we look at God's sovereignty. Here we're looking at human responsibility. Human responsibility uh, never diminishes God's sovereignty. We never can take a step or make a choice that's going to force God to do something. Okay. Um, now, now I admit that that is very complex when you think about it. 
But the Scriptures put both of them together. Um, Philippians chapter 2 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's this one here. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Very next verse. But it's God that works in us both to do the will and to do of His good pleasure. Okay, so, so Scripture puts them back to back, but it doesn't explain how they work together. And that's how we should try to understand them. They simply work together. We don't understand how, but we make sure that we're responsible. Don't attribute anything to God that is evil and uh, take responsibility for our own sin. Any questions on the problem of evil? That was uh, about as brief as it gets, but... Um, if you want to know more about that, um, I think it was uh, towards the end of last year I did a series on Job. I think it was in the morning service. And uh, I think there's 10 or 11 sermons through there. And I would encourage you to, to listen to those. The, I think the last one or two specifically speak on this topic and and open it up a little bit more. Job's a really you know, great study for this topic. Because what we see there is that God does stand behind both good and evil. That all the trouble that came from, on Job, God takes responsibility for it in a sense, but He doesn't stand in the same way behind good as He stands behind evil. In other words, when good happens in the world, God says, it's all me. When evil happens in the world, He said, I, I knew about that. It was a part of my plan but you're responsible for it. Now, you may be thinking, well, that's not fair. How can God say that? How can He stand behind good in one way and evil behind the other? And I would just simply say, well, He's God and He can determine to do it, to make His uh, make the rules how He pleases. Not that, that um, this is immoral for Him to do this. The Scriptures uh, speak about that. All right. Eight biblical statements about sin. This will help us to um, to get a better picture of what sin is before we look at how to kill sin or how to mortify sin on the next page. Number one, inherited guilt. We are counted guilty because of Adam's sin. When I say we, I mean every human being. That is, every human being whose representative is Adam. And the reason I say it that way is because there's one who did not have a representative of Adam, and that is Jesus. He had no father. Uh, he had no earthly father, and therefore, Adam was not his representative. So, Adam, um, Adam is our representative. When Adam sinned, God determined that we all would sin as a result. Listen to Romans 5:19. Through the disobedience of one man, Adam, the many were made sinners. Because of Adam's sin, we all will sin. Now, you may think, well, that's unfair. I don't want to have Adam as my representative. I want somebody else. And if you think that's unfair, then you should also think it's unfair for you to be represented by Christ. Because Christ stands in your place, and you don't deserve to have Him as your representative either. I don't either. Listen to the rest of the verse, 519. So also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. See, so so um, so your representative is Adam, and that means that you're going to sin, and your representative is Christ, and that means you will be saved. 
Number two, inherited corruption. The reason we have a sinful nature is because of Adam's sin. Okay, so we have legal guilt that comes on us because Adam sinned. But our sin, uh, we're not constrained to sin. We're not forced to sin. We sin by choice. And that's because we have a sinful nature. Um, it doesn't start from without outside of us. It's not from training or some you know process that we had to go through to be able to become sinful. We were, as David says, um, sinful from our mother's uh, from from birth. Sinful from when my mother conceived me. Psalm fifty-one five. All right, so we have sinful natures. You, you don't you don't have to teach toddlers how to to sin. They they know, and that's because we uh, we have sinful natures. Number three, in our natures we totally lack spiritual good before God. We totally lack spiritual good before God. This is uh, theologian Robert Raymond. Uh, He says, Man in his raw natural state as he comes from the womb is spiritually corrupt. In his disposition and in his character, no one ever had to teach a child how to throw a temper tantrum or steal a toy or defy their parents. Every part of his being, his mind, will, and emotions, his affections, his conscience, his body, has all been affected by sin. And he says, this is what is meant by the doctrine of Total depravity. In the word depravity, you should hear the word depraved. That we are sinful. He goes on, he says, His understanding is darkened. His mind is at at war with God. His will to act is slave to His darkened understanding and rebellious mind. His heart is corrupt. His emotions are perverted. His affections naturally gravitate to that which is evil. His conscience is untrustworthy. His body is subject to mortality. The Scriptures are full of of representations of the conditions of fallen man, as we'll see here in the following verses. First, Genesis 6, 5 and 6. The Lord saw that every inclination of the thoughts of man was only evil all the time. What are we talking about here in Genesis 6? What event is just about to take place? The flood. Okay, God looks down on, on sinful humanity and He says that other than Noah... Every inclination of the thought of man was only evil all the time. That's total depravity. Now, that doesn't mean that they're as bad as they could be. We're not as bad as we could be because of depravity. But it simply means that we're capable of the worst types of sin. Every single person is capable of the worst types of sin. Romans 7.18 This is Paul, the apostle, after his salvation, is still saying this. I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. That is, even after the point of salvation, the sinful nature just doesn't get wiped away fully. That won't happen until glorification, final salvation, right? Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Uh, who can know it? It's beyond cure. So, we totally lack spiritual good before God. That's called total depravity. Now, the next one's called total inability. That is, 
In our actions, we are total, totally unable to do spiritually good before God. Turn to Romans chapter 8 and I'll show you this. Not only do we lack spiritual good, but we also lack the ability to do anything good. That is, we are unable to change our character and act in any way that's distinct from our sinful, corrupt nature. We're unable to please God. Would someone read verses 6 through 8 of Romans chapter 8? Alright, notice verse 7 again at the end. It does not subject itself to the law of God. Okay, lacks spiritual good. And it is not even able to do so. That's inability right there. It's not only that you didn't want God, or it's not only that you you weren't following God, you weren't doing any spiritual good, and you you had this separation between yourself and God, but you didn't even want to. And even if you wanted to, you were unable to. You see how bad we are apart from Jesus Christ? See how bad all sinful man is? And we are totally unable to please God in ourselves. In fact, unbelievers can't even think um, can't even think correctly about God. Look at look up here on the screen, first Corinthians. Chapter 2, verse 14, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. So, so we don't do what is right. We don't want to do what is right. We're not even able to do it. We can't even think rightly about spiritual things. That's the nature. That's, that's the pervasiveness of spiritual depravity. Spiritual... Or spiritual um, that's the nature of total depravity and total inability. Jesus says, you don't even have the power to come to me on your own. In John 6:44, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So this is how corrupted we are. Now you say, well, well then where's my choice? Where, where, where's my freedom of choice? Well, there's a sense that we make willing choices that have real effects. Um, but we don't have the the choice to make to do what is right and pleasing to God on our own. We 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 want to continue in our sin until God, Jesus says, draws us. He has to do the work in us. All right. Any questions or comments so far on total depravity, total inability? Right. Yeah, there's no there's no possibility for us 
to be sinless in ourselves. And um, so you might be thinking, well, there, I know lots of unbelievers who, who are good people and they do lots of good things for our society and they've actually improved our, our, um, our livelihood and those sorts of things. But what I would argue is all the good things that they do are done with wrong motives. Okay, that is, they're not doing it to please God. And that's what makes it wrong. They're not doing it to please the king. So even the best acts that they can do as an unbeliever are still corrupt before God because they're done for wrong reasons out of pride or, or some ulterior motives. Every part of our lives are tainted by sin. Um, we, we can exercise our will, but, but we lack the ability to be willing to exercise holy choices because our motives are, are wholly wrong. It's like a, a bird that has a broken wing. The bird is, is free to fly, but it cannot. And, and that's the way it is with fallen man. We are free to come to God, but we cannot because we're slaves of our sin. We're, we're, we're bound by our broken wing. You see? And that is, of course, until the Holy Spirit comes and does the work of what? Regeneration. The impartation of spiritual life to the spiritually dead. That's where you get your wings back so you can actually make that choice. That's the Spirit's work. Next one. Uh, number five. All are sinful before God. Hey, this is pretty straightforward. I think uh, if you've been in church for a while, you studying the Scriptures for a while, you know this. Psalm 14.3. They've all gone astray. They're all like corrupt. There's none that does good. No, not one. Psalm 143.2, No man living is righteous before you, speaking to God. 1 Kings 8.46, There's no man who does not sin. Romans 3.23, All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Okay, Romans 3.10, There is none righteous, not even one. Okay, all are sinful before God. And so, because we're all sinful, we have to also recognize that a single sin makes us legally guilty before God. Sin is personal opposition to God. It's not uh, the greatness of the law that makes sin worthy of punishment, but the greatness of the lawgiver. No sins are small when con- committed against a great and holy God. Okay, I, I often use the example of, of our sin uh, before the holy God of the universe. It would, it's the difference between you doing something sinful, okay, something, uh, you assaulting, let's say, a bum on the street in Detroit, okay, the difference in, in, uh, in how you will be viewed, and assaulting the President of the United States. Okay, there's going to be different ramifications. Why? Well, because he's in a higher place of authority, he's protected more. And, and we're not sinning. When we sin, we're not sinning against a local mayor or a magistrate or a judge or, or, or a governor or president of the United States or king of the world. I mean, we're, we're, we're sinning against the God of the universe. And so we should expect that there, is going to be, there are going to be ramifications. And it's not much different from all the people that we've sinned against in our lifetime. That is, because they are all corrupt and they can unjustly uh, just overlook that 
sin without any retribution, but God cannot. Paul affirms that the uh, judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. Condemnation, Romans 5.16. James 2.10-11. Whoever keeps the whole law but offends in one point. Okay, we, we can't stand before God and, and I, I've used this illustration before too, but I think it's helpful. We stand in the courtroom because we've murdered someone. We stand before the judge and we say, but wait, judge. I've got all these good things that I've done. So, so you've got to look at those things, like all this community service and, and all those sorts of things. So, so can you overlook my murder? Well, what kind of judge would we say that judge is if he did that? Corrupt, Corrupt unjust judge. Okay, so... When we sin against God, it's like murder in the sense that, that, um, that, that it's against the holy God. Every sin, the most offended party is God. Every sin that we commit. And so, um, so God has to judge our sin. We should expect that God will judge our sin. And there are different degrees of sin. Okay, Only one sin makes us guilty before God, but there are some sins that are worse than others. Jesus said to Pilate in John 19:11 that um, the one who handed me over to you, Judas, is guilty of a greater sin. Okay, and the scriptures talk about greater judgment for those who have greater sins and so on. Um, and, and this is important for us for two reasons. Number one, personally, because when we commit the greater sins, we recognize what's been left unguarded, that, that we've gone too far, we've allowed something to to get to a place where it shouldn't be. And as a church, it's important for us because it helps us know when we should, uh, when church discipline is appropriate. All right, There are some sins that, that you commit that, that the church is not going to bring on church discipline for. And that's because there are degrees of sin. Number eight, when the Christian sins, his fellowship with God is disrupted. Okay, when, when we sin as a Christian, God doesn't stop loving us and say, you know what, I'm done with you. You're not my family anymore. No, but, but our relationship is, is, um, is marred, I guess we could say. We, we can still displease our parents. Even though we're always the child of our parents, we can still displease them. And that's what happens with God. When we sin against Him, we can displease Him. And so God um, disciplines us for our good so that we can share in His holiness. Alright, so sin has consequences, whether before salvation or, or after. How do we kill sin? That's the idea of mortify. How do we kill it? Ultimately, it's through Jesus. Okay, I've, I've kind of passed over this briefly, but this is really critical that Jesus is the one who made the final mortal blow to sin. Now, it's not going to be finalized until the end of time here, but, but, but that means that only a Christian can mortify sin because there's no death of sin unless there's the death of Christ. Again, we can't please God in ourselves. We're unable to do so. So we need somebody else to stand in our place to be able to, to change us. And this is what happened. Not only does Christ put us in a right standing before God, no longer is my sin charged against me, but also He makes us righteous. 
And as we are going through the Christian life, we're becoming more and more righteous. How does that happen? Well, that happens through the Spirit. As we're, the, the Spirit is the one who sanctifies us to help us to kill the sin, to put it away, to get rid of it. And He does that through the Word of God. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to His Word. Psalm 119.11, Your Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So, here's the persistence that we need in order to fight sin. We need to fight sin constantly, number one. You need to fight sin constantly. Either you're killing sin, or if you're sitting back doing nothing, then sin is killing you. And if you don't think that's true, just look back on your spiritual life to the times when you were complacent or passive spiritually. And think about how much sin you got yourself into. Because if you're not killing sin, if you're not mortifying sin, then sin is killing you. Number two, we need to fight sin observantly. And that means that we have to watch out. Okay, sin is often very subtle and and we it, it sometimes will make us complacent because, oh, we've already taken care of that sin. I never have to deal with that one anymore. I've already I've already licked that one, right? But when sin goes unchecked, it often grows stronger and it rears its ugly head and takes over. So we have to be observant. And uh, one practical way that I recommend based on Psalm 51 is to pray to God and help ask Him to help us to see our own sin. Um, uh, I forget exactly how the, the verse goes there in Psalm 51, but He basically just says, um, you know, know my heart. Know if, see if there be any wicked way in me. Okay, that, that's a sin we or that's a prayer we ought to pray before God. That's how we we fight sin observantly. Number three, precisely. Precisely. Okay. Um, if there is a sin of lust, gentlemen, um, lust, uh, we need to get at the root of it. We need to find out. We need to we need to, to 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 get at the root of it, not just try to get rid of all these surface issues. Okay, I'm never going to look at a woman again. You know, the monks who would remove themselves from society were some of the most immoral people uh, in history. Okay, so so it's not enough to it's not enough to just to, to get rid of all the surface issues. We need to get to the roots. And uh, lust can be more than than in, uh, uh, more than just uh, you know men looking at women. Women can also lust for things that God told them no. Okay, not just uh, someone of the opposite sex, but it could be anything. I mean, anything that God says no or wait, uh, we can lust over. Number four, knowingly. We must know our enemy. Know what sin's methods are, its advantages, opportunities. 
we ignore it, we shouldn't be surprised if it takes over spiritually. Okay? The, the, the opposing way, we put off sin and we put on the fruit of the Spirit. Make sure that we're growing in, in grace and willingly. Fight sin for the right reason. Okay, if, if we're fighting sin because we don't like how we feel after we sin, that may not be the best reason. That's better than not fighting it at all, I guess. But, but we should fight sin for the right motive. That, that this is something that displeases God. My, my Father. The Spirit is grieved when I sin. Alright, then benefits of fighting sin. You've ha- you have all those listed there. I'll just read through them quickly. Peace and comfort. Assurance of salvation. You struggle with assurance of salvation, then uh, this is a good thing to, to keep in mind to make sure that you're constantly fighting sin. Protection against later attacks. Uh, because if you just ignore it, it's going to come back and, and you need to, you're not going to be ready. Uh, makes it easier to worship God. And uh, all of us could attest to this, that there, when we're living in sin, it is not easy to worship God. It pleases our Lord. And then it puts us in a place where God can bless us spiritually. All right. Ultimately, what sin does is it helps point us to our own wickedness. And it feels, it feels very daunting to think about sin and the weight of it on us. But, but what we should recognize ultimately is that, that there was one who overcame sin, overcame temptation, never gave in to sin, and ultimately paid the price for our sin. That He took upon Himself our sin upon His shoulders so that we wouldn't have to. And uh, and that's ultimately why we should be wanting to continually kill it, to put it away, to get rid of it. Alright, any questions or comments? Bill. Right. Right. Yep. Yeah, the key is continually confess it before God. Say the same thing about your sin that God says about it. Acknowledge it before Him, and He'll forgive you. Forgive me, Sandra. I think that um, I think that comes into play probably with regard to our sinful nature. That we can't say, "Well, it's Adam's fault that we sin." We we choose to sin ourselves. I mean, there is a sense in which 
Adam was our representative, and we sinned for that reason. But but there's another sense in which we have responsibility for ourselves. We choose to. So I think, yeah. Um, um, trying to think of a verse here that um, I can only think of the last part. I can't think of the whole thing. But um, but yeah, I think that's accurate. And the other thing yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh it's amazing how Paul at the beginning of his life recognized or beginning of his Christian life recognized the sin, but at the end of his life he really recognized it. He started out by saying, I'm the worst of the apostles and then the worst of all saints and then by the end of his life in Philippians he says, I'm the worst of all people. That is there's not a worse sinner than me. Why? Because he, as he got closer and closer to God, he started to have the light, the glory of God being shined upon him and the dark places were all starting to come. See, farther we are away from God, we don't see our sin as clearly. We don't care about it. We're not into His Word. We don't see you know, where it's a problem. But as we get closer and closer to God, the light of His Word and, and uh, His glory shines upon us and it reveals all these hidden areas. Bill? Yeah. I mean, it's just. I yep. had a man tell me to find Christ on every page. And I said, I can't. Uh, you help me. Well, I'm kind of busy, but I know it's there. <laughs> I know it's God's Word, but I don't know God's Word. Yeah, yeah. not good to struggle, but it's helpful. All right, let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we are sinful and we acknowledge that. We know that you have not coerced us to sin and and, uh, and you've done really um, something great in our lives by providing for us your greatest possession, Jesus Christ, sending him to this earth to become like us, to overcome all the temptation and um, and feel all the weight of of that temptation and the and the struggles that that we go through, and uh, and he died in our place, and so we're we're grateful for that. We have now a means by which we can come to you. Our sin separated us from you, but he stood in our place. He's our mediator, and we look to him. Help us when we struggle with this sin to look to him, and to recognize and take joy in the gospel that He did come to save us, um, even us who are the worst of, of sinners, really, and deserving of Your wrath just as much as anyone else. We ask for Your help now in this service to follow. In Jesus' name, Amen.